Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in the human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. This episode is brought to you by BlueApron.com. By now you probably know that I don't pitch to you guys anything that I haven't tried myself and I've actually enjoyed, and that's exactly what happened with Blue Apron. I tried their products, loved them, so here we are now. I really like what they do, which is deliver to your door fresh, high-quality ingredients that will help you cook some great meal without costing you a fortune. I don't want to spend too much time up top talking about sponsorships and things because I know some of you guys are really, you know, you want the episode to start. And But please, it would be sweet if you stick around for the end of the episode when I'll discuss uh, future plans for the podcast and I'll discuss further the exclusive offer that Blue Apron is giving History on Fire listener if you go to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Similarly, same story goes for my two regular sponsors, Datsusara and Onnit. This podcast really wouldn't exist without their support, because as much as some of you guys are sending donations or using the Amazon link, which is really sweet and it helps, it doesn't quite pay the bills. Datsusara and Onnit are able to keep me floating. So it would be really sweet if you can check out their websites and see if you can use any of their products. I personally love them. I use Datsusara bags every day of my life. I use Omni supplements and workout gear and some of their foods. I really, really dig the companies. I dig the people running them, both great human beings. So please check them out. DSgear.com, you can use the code Daniele at checkout for a discount. Or www.onnit.com forward slash history for a discount on Omnit product. But for now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. It would probably be wise for me to stay clear of doing modern US history. And the reason is simple. It's everybody has an opinion on it. No one is going to get offended regardless of what I say about ancient Rome. You're not going to have... Uh, Oh, the rabid fans of the aristocrats or the Gracchi brothers uh, hating on me because of some opinions I threw about ancient Rome. But when it comes to more modern US politics, everybody is more likely to be angry. People either love or hate certain presidents, certain public figures, certain historical events. And yet, maybe because wisdom is not something that has graced me too often, or maybe because it's just too juicy of a topic not to play with it, 
I find myself unable to stay away from it. So that's where we're going to go today. Now, specifically, the man we're going to be discussing is Mr. Theodore Roosevelt. And Roosevelt is no exception to the pattern that I've just described above. You know, most of the biographies written about him either describe him as the greatest man on earth or in this horrible villain who could do nothing right. And obviously, reality is never found in these extremes. And yet that's where the majority of what's out there, of what's published is. You know, the when it comes to Roosevelt, and again, when it comes to most modern American politics, the public out there is divided in fans and haters. There's not a whole lot of in-between. Now, for full disclosure, I happen to like Theodore Roosevelt. I don't agree with everything he did. I mean, some of his positions I flat out despise. And yet, somehow, I like him anyway, a lot. Part of what I like about the man is that everything about him is just heart, passion, also lots of demons. Now, despite liking him, I'm also big on keeping it real and not Disney-fying history. I'm not blind to some of his major faults, some of the things that both, both his beliefs and actions were fairly appalling at times. But I do find him this fascinating, complex figure that's too... I kind of resent the efforts of most people to either cast him as this uh, perfect hero or this horrible villain. Noam Chomsky, for example. Famous political writer Noam Chomsky, linguist and everything else he's done. Chomsky trashes Roosevelt when he wrote about him. And while it is true that I don't support the whitewashing of history or the effort to try to turn Theodore Roosevelt into a saint, and that's why I have zero problems calling on Roosevelt's many defects when they show up, I also don't support demonizing him. Chomsky, in his treatment of Roosevelt, he looks to me like he's seriously addicted to a black-and-white worldview. He wants good, good guys or bad, bad guys. Now, this approach is really not useful when it comes to Theodore Roosevelt, or for that matter, to life itself, because things are rarely that black and white. As Facebook would say, it's complicated. In this regard, there's a beautiful quote by Jared Diamond, the author of Guns, Germs and Steel, who writes, History as well as life itself, is complicated. Neither life nor history is an enterprise for those who seek simplicity and consistency. I cannot find a better quote to capture what I'm trying to say here. Um, in the same spirit, Theodore Roosevelt's second wife, Edith, stated that the best book about him was one who characterized him as having a personality, I quote from Edith's words, far more complicated and intricate than is commonly supposed. One of the characteristics that Roosevelt seems to have is he... You, I mean, by now you may have noticed a pattern in uh, what we've been doing with the last few episodes. We did a whole series on Crazy Horse, then I had uh, the series on Caravaggio, now to the Roosevelt. There are some commonalities here, even though one is a... Uh, 
nomadic tribal leader. The other one is a painter from Italy in the late 1500s, early 1600s. Then we have an American president. So clearly their lives are extremely different. But one common pattern, one common thread that seemed to run through all of them is that they all, they are all in some weird odd way lovable but mentally deranged. This seems to be the common characteristic of a lot of the historical figure that I'm intrigued with. There's no argument that in some way they are all characters that are, who are larger than life, but there's also no argument that all of these men dealt with some serious demons throughout their lives. Demons that have pushed them to act and do things out of the ordinary, both in a good way and in a bad way. There's a great Friedrich Nietzsche quote, and speaking of patterns, you may have noticed by now I tend to quote Nietzsche a lot. This quote capture Roosevelt to a T. He say, You must still have chaos in yourself to be able to give birth to a dancing star. Let's try that again, because my heavy Italian accent may get in the way of you understanding what I'm saying. And plus, it's just a cool quote, so let's play with it again. You must still have chaos in yourself to be able to give birth to a dancing star. This is exactly what I'm interested in when it comes to Theodore Roosevelt, in his wild, chaotic personality. If I could not talk about his politics, I would. This is not going to be a classic political biography. I'm interested primarily in his personality. I'm interested in his struggling with his demons. I'm interested in the fact that he combined things within himself that people addicted to rigid ideologies usually tend to keep separate. Of course, it's impossible not to talk about his politics, since he expressed himself through them, but they are really not the main focus here. Apparently, in being fascinated with Theodore Roosevelt, I'm in good company. Despite major controversies, Roosevelt is loved by a whole lot of people. There was a 1913 poll by American Magazine stated that uh, Roosevelt won the poll for greatest man in the United States. The philosopher William James hated Roosevelt's imperialism, but also stated, I myself regard Roosevelt with all of his faults, as a tremendously precious natural asset. One of my modern old-time idols, John Milius, the director of uh, Conan the Barbarian, uh, screenwriter of Apocalypse Now, the inspiration behind the TV series Rome, uh, which if you guys haven't checked out, the HBO TV series Rome was just pure genius. Uh, Milius was also the first creative director of the UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. And he's a guy who knows a thing or two about over-the-top personalities, and he absolutely worshipped Roosevelt. Incidentally, check out a documentary entitled Milius about John Milius' life. It's probably one of my two or three most favorite documentaries of all time. Is uh, um, Anytime I do... I see Milius, I think about some of the stuff he has done, he very much reminds me of Roosevelt. Testifying to the impact that Roosevelt had on public consciousness, in 1912 he won the largest percentage of the vote won by a third-party candidate in US history. 
the New York Ward spoke of Roosevelt as the strangest creature the White House ever held. His face, of course, is famously sculpted on Mount Rushmore along with George Washington, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. And if there were a competition to crown the American president with the most colorful and wildest personality of all, Theodore Roosevelt would win it without sweating. Let's take a look, though. Enough with the introduction. Let's take a look at uh, his life. Let's see about his upbringing, how he grew up and all of that stuff. Roosevelt was born in 1858, and he was born to a very old, extremely wealthy New York family. He probably could have done, like all of the members of his family, they really could have done nothing in their lives and just lived off their savings. But like some of the aristocrats from back then, they were big on public life. They, it's hard to tell how much they just were altruistic people who wanted to help others or how much it was a matter of ego. But sometimes it's a mix of, most of the time it's a mix of both and it's hard to tell. But regardless, they were ridiculously wealthy and they wanted to be quite involved in public life. His father in particular was a huge influence to Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt loved his father tremendously. It's clear that he was the primary figure in his whole childhood and probably early adolescence as well. Uh, he described his father as being both very strong and very kind. In, uh, in Roosevelt's own words, the best I ever knew. He combined strength and courage with gentleness, tenderness and great unselfishness. His father was a philanthropist and he taught Theodore the idea that superior men, I put the quotes around the term superior, but they wouldn't have put those quotes, they saw the word in those terms. He believed that superior men should help the inferior. Now, this is of course an extremely paternalistic worldview, but it's also philanthropic, so the two elements go hand in hand. In some way he instilled in Theodore, this belief in paternalistic heroism, in the notion that it's the mission of the great man to create a more perfect society. Which again, you know, one hand it's sweet, on the other hand there's that element of I know what's best for you, so let me push it through whether you see it or not, which is always a dangerous type of way of thinking, and Roosevelt will clearly have both sides to him throughout his life. Despite being incredibly wealthy, his family had plenty of problems. Sometimes, you know, they are a perfect example to the truth that wealth doesn't necessarily make life easy all the time. It may make it easier, but not easy. For example, the, his parents' first child, his oldest sibling, Anna, became an invalid due to a spinal injury. Some believe that he may have, she may have contracted polio, Others say that she may have been dropped by a nanny. Nobody knows for sure. In any case, she was heavily injured as a result of this. Theodore Roosevelt's own mother had plenty of problems on her hands. She always had digestive disorders, palpitations, nightmares. Was pretty much confined at home to doing nothing but stay in bed most of the time. And some people believe that she had this poorly diagnosed nervous illness, which those who are uncharitable believe that this illness was a made-up thing, that it just gave women a good excuse to avoid fulfilling 
the many responsibilities placed on them. Others believe that this wasn't an excuse at all, but it was a serious psychosomatic illness um, clearly linked to depression. It seems likely that the second option is correct because she wasn't exactly having a party while not taking care of home chores or something. She was fairly miserable. But in any case, that's that's a heavy thing, you know. If you have a parent that is constantly in bed, constantly depressed, constantly with physical issues, that's something that's going to affect the mood of the household quite heavily. His mother also a different side to her. She She was from the South. She belonged to Southern aristocracy. And she would tell Theodore stories about duels and tough manly southerners who, I quote, love the name of honor more than they fear death. And through all these stories, she kind of planted the seeds in Theodore of the notion of worshipping brave aristocrats fighting for honor and military heroism. In what seems like a contradiction, considering that she was the one pushing this uh, this idea of martial virtue and honor and warfare and all of that. When the civil war broke out, she actually begged her husband not to go fight in the civil war. Part of the reason is because her own brothers were fighting on the other side of the civil war. Theodore Roosevelt's uncles were confederates, whereas his father was asked to fight for the Union. So Theodore Roosevelt's mom asked her husband, please don't, don't do it, don't do it, I'm too sick, don't leave me behind, all of this stuff. So eventually, he agreed to just pay money for a substitute to take his place in the Union instead, in the Union Army. This was a common practice, you know, if you are drafted into the Army, if you had the money, you could pay for them to pick somebody else in your place, whereas clearly if you did not have the money, you were stuck having to go which is something that made this process highly unpopular among uh, the middle and lower classes. Public opinion was fairly disgusted with rich men paying for substitutes. And Theodore Roosevelt's father, even though he did do this, he just could not live with himself afterwards. He couldn't forgive himself. The mark of being a coward haunted him and haunted Theodore Roosevelt, for that matter, for a long time after this. Many of Theodore's choices will be influenced by his father sitting out of the civil war. Theodore himself dealt with major physical issues. He suffered from headaches, fevers, very heavy form of asthma. Now, today, his asthmatic attack would be treatable. At that time they could have killed him. He grew up with this terrifying feeling of not being able to breathe ever since he was a little kid. His own parents thought that he would probably die soon. In one occasion, he heard his parents, uh, when they thought he couldn't hear them, saying to each other that they expected him to die young. So not a big surprise to say that Theodore grew up constantly grappling with fear. Between the asthma and the associated fear, Roosevelt was psychologically in a constant state of struggle. His life was literally a battle. 
which is funny in some ways because the man was, you know, he grew up in wealth and extreme privilege, but health doesn't discriminate among social classes. And so he had to struggle despite his seemingly fortunate upbringing. This went so far that he couldn't even go to private school because he was too weak to handle it and rougher kids would have just bullied him to death. So private tutors had to come to his house to give him an education. And it was only when he finally went to college, much later in life, when uh, that was the first school that he actually attended. His own little brother, Elliot, had to protect him from the other kids on the street, because Theodore was too weak and afraid to defend himself. As a result of this, since he was sickly and not having many physical outlets, his main escape was studying natural history and reading a lot. So as a result, Theodore became a bit of a nerd. He had his head constantly buried in books. As a result of this, he learned how to speak beautifully since he had an amazing vocabulary, and this became his main way to develop self-esteem. This is something that he would keep up throughout his life. Uh, he ended up writing a very long book about the Naval War of 1812 while he, while he was still an undergraduate in college. And throughout his life, he ended up authoring over 30 books, which is more than any American president even dreamt of doing. In the long term, this clearly was a gift. But in his childhood, he often appeared lost in his own world, in his own fantasies. So most other kids were usually annoyed with him. He was kind of too much of a nerd for them. Um, part of his education, part of his um, worldview, a lot of his readings was about tough, fearless action heroes. And when you think about it, there's something really both sad and sweet about this weak, sickly, nerdy child dreaming of strength. You know, spending his time reading, 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 having this very frail physical body and constantly imagining what it would be like to be this tough, strong man. This, as we're going to see, is going to be one of the key characteristics to influence his life. Um, but we're going to get to that soon. Here is a quote from Theodore himself about this stuff. He said, from reading of the people I admired, ranging from the soldiers of Valley Forge and Morgan's Riflemen to the heroes of my favorite stories, and from hearing of the feats performed by my southern forefathers and kinsfolk, and from knowing my father, I felt a great admiration for men who were fearless and who could hold their own in the world, and I had a great desire to be like them. Until I was nearly 14, I let this desire take no more definite shape than daydreams. So in the meantime, before he turned 14, Thierry would uh, read about this stuff all the time, and yet then he would have to deal with his physical reality, which was very, very far from this. His father took tremendous care of him. He would always pick him up in his arm any time Theodore had asthma attacks. And he would take him for night rides in the family carriage, hoping that 
the influx of oxygen would open up his lungs. Again, in Theodore's words, the thought of him now, and always, has been a sense of comfort. I could breathe, I could sleep, when he had me in his arms. My father, he got me breath, he got me lungs, strength, life. Now, if that's not a beautiful declaration of love, I don't know what is. However, despite all of his father's effort, despite the fact that he clearly spared no energy to help his son, some of the recommended remedies of the times were not exactly what today we would see as scientifically sound. Believe it or not, and this may sound comical, but one of the prevailing ideas is that to help a kid with asthma they would have him smoke cigars, the theory being that somehow would strengthen his lungs, yeah, not exactly the best medical thinking ever. Not surprisingly, nothing worked. So when he was about 13 or 14, his father called him to his office to tell him to sit him down and say, look, we've tried everything and nothing is working. If you're going to get rid of all these physical ailments, you're going to have to do it through sheer willpower. You'll have to power through this. Um, the message was, you know, you're super smart, but you need to develop the body in order to be a strong individual. Uh, the quote, apparently his father said something along the lines of, Theodore, you have the mind, but you have not the body. And without the help of the body, the mind cannot go as far as it should. So the message was you need to start working on your physical body, whether you feel that you can handle it or not. Again, the quote from his father went, I'm giving you the tools, but it's up to you to make your own body. And Theodore said, okay, I'll do it. The result of this, as we're going to see, will be dramatic. Later in life, uh, Roosevelt will say, I owe everything I have or am to father. So clearly, his father, I mean, it's impossible to not emphasize enough how big of an influence he was on him. Now, the decision to start training his physical body was reinforced by a trip that um, Theodore took when he was sent to Musahed Lake uh, for the first time on his own because he was dealing with uh, asthma was hitting him a lot in those days and so during a particularly bad attack they decided to send him up there thinking that the the air out there may help him get over these latest rounds of attack he had never been anywhere on his own prior to this and during the trip a couple of boys ran uh, into him and they just bullied him hard and humiliated him by roughing him up so Theodore was feeling horrible about himself, was feeling that, why am I such a weakling, I need to do something about it. So like in the best fairy tales, Roosevelt decided, I need to step up, I need to change this, I cannot go on living like this. This pretty much seems like the premise to every other martial art movie ever made, right? This is kind of how Karate Kid starts or something. And so that's basically what happens. Roosevelt fought against the cards that had been handed to him and figured out that the only thing to avoid a life as a weakling would be to train himself mentally and physically and to toughen up or die trying because that was the idea I mean this life is as if 
was having it. He didn't feel that that life was worth living. That's not the person he wanted to be. So he started going to a gym to lift weights. They also set up a little gym in his own home so that he could work out and do calisthenics and weight training at home. At 14, he started taking boxing lessons, which he considered the greatest antidote against timidity and was also a great antidote against the shame of having his younger brother having to protect him from bullies. So this is, again, is the classic stories of most people who learn to fight, not for other deeper reasons, but primarily to protect themselves against bullies. His boxing teacher was a certain John Logan, and he was quite impressed with, not so much with Theodore's natural inclination for boxing, because it didn't seem to have much of one, but he was impressed with his ability to take punches and keep coming. And sometimes, you know, natural talent, technique, yeah, those are good things to have. But in many cases, just stupid willpower, just ability to keep going regardless of outcome, sometimes that counts more for success than talent alone. Roosevelt once wrote, Man does in fact become fearless by sheer dint of practicing fearlessness. That's in a nutshell is, was his approach. You know, he wasn't fearless. He was actually the exact opposite. He grew up full of fear. So his solution, his plan was to just expose himself to scary situation and literally practicing fearlessness, practicing stepping up despite being terrorized so that eventually the terror would subside, the fear would diminish and his own confidence in his ability to deal with it would increase. Besides taking lessons with John Long, Theodore regularly uh, recruited his brother Elliot and his cousin Johnny to beat the hell out of each other during major sparring sessions. These guys clearly were not exposed to the notion that you should not spar hard all the time, that you you don't want to take too many blows to the head, so they would just beat the living hell out of each other, regularly walk out with black eyes, and and this is something that, this is a habit that he kept up even when he became president later on in life. Now, as this was happening, his asthmatic attack declined. They were not quite as bad. Probably this is a coincidence, since often asthmatic attacks decline with age, but maybe not, you know. Unlike what he claimed, though, he was never fully cured. He would later say, oh, I just toughened it up and I defeated asthma. That's probably not the way it worked, but it definitely got a lot better. His sister Corinne, his younger sister, said, I wish I could tell you of something which really cured Theodore's asthma, but he never did recover in a definite way, and indeed suffered from it all of his life. Though in later years only at long, separated intervals. Whether by luck or willpower or both, he was able to push asthma away from being the center of his life. By 1873, Theodore was much stronger, and he joined the rest of the family on a trip to North Africa, uh, spent some time in Egypt in particular. There's 
There's another anecdote about his trip to Egypt, where the famous philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, along with his daughter, joined the Roosevelt family for lunch on their boat on the Nile. That must have been that must have been a really interesting conversation. You know, you figure you would want to be the fly, the proverbial fly on the wall, sitting in on the conversation between a young Theodore Roosevelt and Ralph Waldo Emerson. His energy had grown exponentially. So he was always either reading, like he had always done, or he was involved in intense physical activities, his new favorite pastime. He constantly competed in athletic, in athletic events with his family members. And he was not a natural athlete, so he didn't always win. But whatever he lacked in genetic gift, he made up through just persistence. In the meantime, as Theodore was getting stronger, his brother Elliot was getting was beginning a long downward spiral that would follow him from the rest of his life. He started having major headaches and started showing some behavioral changes that were quite worrisome. In light of what we know now about concussions, it's highly possible that Elliot took too many blows to the head while boxing. Of course, this is speculation, we can't be sure, but it's definitely a possibility. By 1876, Theodore went to, was accepted to study at Harvard. By the time he got there, he was a rather colorful character. He was constantly talking, constantly asking lots of questions in class. He, his classmates saw him as a really weird guy. You know, he could already speak French, German, and Italian. He kept snakes in his room. Most of the other kids were not really all that impressed with Theodore's intellectual accomplishment. They were into fighting, drinking, gambling. You know, a certain William Hopper described him as a freak, a poser, and half crazy. It's an interesting description by your classmates who think of you as a freak, a poser, and half crazy. I can't entirely say this characterization was wrong, because clearly, you know, the half crazy part, yeah, Theodore was not the most normal person in the world, that's for sure. You know, while the other boys would uh, get together to drink, uh, Theodore would be in his room preparing papers on the gills of crustaceans that was to be delivered at the Natural History Society. The fact that he boxed and, and did athletics was the only reason why they tolerated him. Otherwise, he would have just seemed too weird. In college, he added wrestling to his training. He would box five times a week, wrestled, ran, rode. Uh, every single day, he walked about eight miles, running from one classroom to the next. Everybody thought he was a bit manic. He failed a win in boxing and wrestling competitions at Harvard, but again, people were impressed with his toughness. He, he went to try to win the um, lightweight boxing championship, and there's a story about a lightweight tournament from 1879 where Theodore won his first match, and then in his second match, he turned the crowd to his side because what happened was at toward the end of a round, his opponent did not hear the bell, so after the bell signal in the end of the round rang out, Theodore dropped his hand, ready to go back to his corner. His opponent decided that was a good time to just 
punch him hard in the face. So all of the spectators, all of the audience started shouting and booing and and Roosevelt himself basically hushed them down saying, ah, hush, he didn't hear. You know, in other words, no big deal. You know, yeah, he, he didn't do it on purpose. And people really appreciated his fair play in the middle of battle. One of the things that people appreciated less was the his tendency to being a big moralist. You know, Theodore, this is part of the influence of Theodore's father. Theodore's father gave money to Anthony Comstock, who, in case you guys don't know, Anthony Comstock is one of the weirdest figures in American history. At some point, it may be worth doing an episode about him, even though I tend to I tend to cover stories that I enjoy to one degree or another, and Comstock is a, you know, was a very strange individual, to say the least. But suffice to say for now, he was a religious fundamentalist who was very big on the notion of pushing censorship in the United States, of squashing what he considered obscenity, which was basically anything having to do with sexuality in one way or another. And Theodore's father was a big supporter of Comstock and gave him money. So Theodore learned a lot of his moralizing tendencies from his father. By 1878, his father, he was only 46 years old at this time, but he died of cancer when Theodore was a sophomore. This crushed Theodore's spirit for a while. I quote from Roosevelt's own words, looking back on his life, meaning his father's life, looking back on his life, it seems as if mine must be such a weak, useless one in comparison. And in another quote, I often feel badly that such a wonderful man as father should have had as a son of so little worth as I. I could not help reflecting sadly on how little use I am, or even shall be in the world, not through lack of perseverance and good intentions, but through sheer inability. I realize more and more every day that I am as much inferior to father morally and mentally and physically. So his father's death really hurt him bad. He would write that his death felt, I quote, as if part of my life had been taken away. He stopped going out in public for a while for fear that he would break out crying. And he even wrote, if I had very much time to think I believe I should almost go crazy. And in another quote, the aim and purpose of my life have been taken away. So the man was really, really depressed at this point. Uh, and last quote on this topic that I'll throw at you guys. Sometimes when I realize my loss, I feel as if I should go wild. He was everything to me. I have lost the only human being to whom I told everything. So at this time, he started spending more and more time with his childhood friend, Edith Carroll. Edith had been uh, a friend from, a family friend for a really long time. Her father had been a friend of Theodore's father. So Edith and Theodore both loved reading books, and turned out they had a lot in common. They had been friends for many years now, and some people think that they may have been boyfriend and girlfriend by now. 
some people suggest that right around this time he proposed to her. Now, we're not sure whether that's true or not. What we do know is that at one point in August of 1878, they, after spending some time together, they got into a big, huge fight. No one knows why. But right at that point, they kind of drifted apart and stopped seeing each other. Theodore said that both of them had major tempers that were far from the best. And he didn't discuss what was that drove them apart, but whatever it was, you know, it's fairly safe to say that considering the grief that he was carrying regarding his father's death, me, that probably affected his delivery or so. And so, you know, here we're having heartbreak, grief, everything piled on top of each other. He loses this friend, possible girlfriend that he was really close to. His father is dead. So as a way to deal with it, he would go on these long rowing marathons where he would just get in his boat and start rowing, or he would just hop on his horse and go on these crazy long intense rides. He kind of lost it a little. Some people thought that he was going insane. Um, So in order to deal with it, he would also spend tons of time in the woods of Maine to just hike and hunt. Wilderness was the place that he would... This is a common theme throughout his life. The wilderness will be always the place that he turns to, to restore himself, to find some peace again. But one thing that happened is that now that his father was gone, he started shedding some of the strict moralism that his father had taught him. Author Kathleen Dalton writes... The pressure from his father to remain morally pure had postponed his becoming one of the boys. But now he was free. So Theodore started joining his classmates, going out drinking, and as a result he was accepted by his peers. Despite all the progress he had made physically, he was still kind of not 100%. By the time, even by the time he graduated from Harvard, his doctor told him that he had a weak constitution and heart, and he didn't expect him to have a long life. So he suggested that he would lead a quiet, sheltered life. Needless to say, that's not the advice that Theodore would take to heart. By late 1878, a classmate of his invited him to his home. And while he was there, he met his classmate's cousin, a certain Alice Hathaway Lee. She was about 17 years old at the time. Theodore saw her and immediately turned to a friend and said, See that girl? I'm going to marry her. Obviously, he was looking for emotional stability. The death of his father, the fight with Edith... Now he he was looking for someone to turn to that would take the place of everything he had lost, and Alice seemed to be the one that he turned to. His courtship was very strategic. He started getting in good with all of her family. He would uh, sit down to talk politics with her uncle. She w- he would play tennis with Alice. He included her cousin Rose, who was kind of this unpopular girl, and so he wanted to show himself more chivalrous. He played rough with her nine-year-old brother and told him and a sister of Alice all 
wild stories about bears and wolves and ghosts, he basically started entertaining everybody in her family and making sure that everyone liked him. That did not mean that he was completely healed from his wild mold swings. At one point, thinking that Alice may have preferred the attention of her neighbor, he decided to order dueling pistols and was planning to challenge this man to a duel. Yeah, not exactly the behavior of the most mentally well-adjusted individual in the world. But eventually Alice made it clear that no, she preferred him, that she... And so when he proposed, she accepted to marry him. One of the conditions, she was worried that if she got married, she could no longer have some of her freedom and go out, visit friends and all of that. But Theodore reassured her that he would not be jealous. He said, the more good times you have, dancing, visiting, or doing anything else you like, the happier I am. Theodore actually had some very unusually progressive ideas for his times regarding gender roles. During this time, Harvard medical students were demonstrating against the idea of admitting women to medical school. But Theodore actually was against that because he was in favor of women having the same opportunities as men. He believed that women could be men intellectually equal to men. Uh, he argued that in the future they may even be included in the armed forces. Which is kind of interesting that someone so focused on masculinity as he was actually had such progressive ideas regarding women roles. Uh, he had this clearly was worshipping at the altar of the cult of masculinity, but at the same time he was in favor of women's right to vote. He even suggested that women should be able to keep their last names after marrying if they felt like it. So, as usual with Roosevelt, he's never this or that. He's always a mix of seemingly opposite qualities. In any case, in 1880, two years later, they did get married on the same day as Theodore's 22nd birthday. And for a while, Alice became the center of his world. Um, in Roosevelt's own word, the aim of my whole life shall be to make her happy. And in another letter he wrote, our intense happiness is too sacred to be written about. So seemingly he found the stability he was looking for. They moved in with his mom, his brother Elliot, and his two sisters, Corinne and Bami. They, in the meantime, he also finished writing a book about the War of 1812, his, the first of many books that he would author. Alice was a bit annoyed by the time that he spent writing, so would constantly try to distract him and have him spend more time with her. But despite this, they seemed to be a fairly happy couple. In 1881, some members of the Republican Party asked Roosevelt to run for state assembly against a politician that they didn't approve of. They wanted, they felt like he was from a good family, a popular man. Um, as a result of this, Theodore became the youngest man ever to be elected to the New York State Assembly. Most of his friends were a bit disgusted by this choice to enter politics because it was not really considered proper for a gentleman to do that. 
and similarly professional politicians and newspapers looked at him as someone who really didn't belong among them. He was this rich, nerdy boy from Harvard. So newspapers published articles making fun of him as a weakling. They made fun of his fancy clothing, his high-pitched voice, his tight pants. They questioned his masculinity and suggested he may be gay. Uh, rival politicians similarly laughed at him and nicknamed him after the English writer Oscar Wilde, a not-so-veiled allusion to his not being a real man and perhaps being gay. So Theodore did everything he could to counter this image, to the point that within a few years he was considered a quintessence of American manhood, so he did a big 180 in that regard. Once arrival, politicians made fun of his clothes and started pushing him around, so Theodore just knocked him down thanks to his boxing. In another occasion, another rival politician threatened violence, so Theodore that if he ever tried anything, he would bite him, punch him and kick him in the balls, which sounds like an excellent approach to street fighting. So very quickly he became the best-known member of his party in New York State, this old by the time before he was 26 years old. He often took unpopular stances that were different even from those supported by his own party. So while he alienated some people in his own party, he also gained some new friends. He befriended uh, New York Times reporter um, George Spinney and a politician named Isaac Hunt and they bonded together over the love of sporting male culture of lower-class entertainment. You know, they gambled together, they drank together. Roosevelt drew the line at hookers, that he didn't go that route, unlike what was popular along with gambling and, dr and drinking in lower-class entertainment. But he was a big fan of some of the culture of the lower classes. At one point he went to an illegal cockfight with his friends Pinney and Hunt and uh, they had to run away from the police when the police came to break up the meeting. He even became friends with people who usually were not the friends of people from the aristocracy. He became friends with German Jews, Irish Catholics, people who at this time in US history were heavily discriminated against. And some of these new friends took care of courting ethnic voters for him, of trying to get him a, a slice of the vote that he would never be able to approach on his own. A labor leader named Samuel Gompers invited him to go along with him to visit some of the lower class homes to see what people actually live like, particularly there was a tradition of people making cigars at home that then they would sell to the cigar industries. And so Theodore went along and was exposed to stuff that clearly a man of his social class would never be exposed to. He saw little kids living in extreme poverty and working along with the rest of the family making cigars. So he supported, as a result of this experience, he supported a bill to try to reform some of the squalid living conditions that they were living in and try to put you know, limits to this kind of sweatshop type of work environment. But he was quite disappointed when he, the courts blocked it. And theater, this was the first time that he grew disgusted with the court system blocking some of his reforms. In a beautiful one-liner, he spoke of them saying, 
they knew legalism but not life. They knew legalism but not life is a sentence that I think could be applied to a lot of people I know, particularly in academia. But in any case, um, initially Theodore, because of where he came from, because of his social class, he tended to side with capital over labor. And initially he opposed some of the labor demands, such as the request for an eight-hour workday and not be asked to work 12 or 14 hours a day. But as time went by, he started switching and slowly siding with labor more and more often. In one occasion, he got a hold of some evidence showing that the super-powerful businessman Jay Gold had bribed a judge. So Theodore called for an investigation. And again, he was shocked to realize how corrupt the game was when many of his own colleagues blocked the investigation to essentially protect Jay Gold. Roosevelt was disgusted. He was like, really, this is what politics is all about? I mean, clearly he had some naive ideas about how the political game worked. And he found out the hard way that corruption was all around him. This, however, didn't deter him, didn't make him change his mind of, oh, maybe I should play ball and go along with what these guys are doing. He made the fighting corruption one of his prime... He beca- that really became one of his priorities. And he quickly made an enemy of Jay Gold. Now, while he was on political business in Albany, on uh, February 12, 1884, something that should have been a very joyful occasion turned out to be a horrible day for him. Uh, he received the news that his first child, his daughter Alice, is born. So he started heading toward New York back home. He traveled through heavy fog. And by the time he arrived to the house he found his brother telling him that their mother was dying and his wife was dying as well. As it turns out, his mother had contracted typhoid fever and she was dying of this. And his wife was dealing with kidney failure. She had some kidney disease that had been made worse by uh, pregnancy and birth. So this little girl, Alice, was born in the midst of death, stalking the house. On Valentine's Day, 1884, his mother was 48 years old, died at 3 a.m., and just a few hours later, by 2 p.m., his wife Alice, 22 years old, died in his arms. Roosevelt picked up the pen and wrote in his diary, The light has gone out of my life. And he never really got over this. He just found a way to carry on in spite of it, but he really never got over it. His way of dealing with it became denial. You know, the guilt over not rushing home sooner and feeling like he may have neglected his wife was overwhelming him. He tried everything he could to erase the memory of her because it was so painful. He never spoke to his daughter about her mom which was a bad idea, since growing up, Alice felt responsible for her mom's death. The legend is that he never spoke of his wife ever again. Uh, Not exactly true. He did on occasion, but it was very, very rare. He wrote to a friend, The little baby is doing well. I shall call her Lee, for there can never be another Alice to me. 
nor could I have another, not even her own child, bear her name. So for years they called the, the child Baby Lee, and he asked his older sister to be in charge of raising Alice, and for a little bit he lived with his sister and, uh, and Alice. But, again, think bad about everything I just said. The light has gone out of my life is very much where, where Roosevelt was at at this moment. Many people suggest that his personality was a bit manic-depressive, and his way to stay sane was through expanding energy in constant action. Anytime lack of action would be in his life, that would mess him up. So eventually he put up his house for sale, gave his daughter to his own sister, and returned to work to Albany. He didn't want anyone to talk to him about the death in his family. He worked crazy long hours because he believed he would go insane otherwise. Author Clay Jenkinson described him as, I quote, a six-year-old child on steroids, and in another quote, as a Tasmanian devil. But eventually, he refused nomination to a fourth term in the state assembly, and he packed up and left to go west to reinvent his life. He spent some time out there between 1884, 1885, and 1886, specifically in the Badlands, in the Dakotas. The Badlands are a melancholic, remote environment, and he saw them as the place where he would go to reforge himself. This process of seeking to isolate himself in the wilderness and put himself through a fairly extreme lifestyle kind of reminds me of Wim Hof. If you guys are not familiar with him, he did uh, several great podcasts. There are some interviews with him on the Joe Rogan podcast, on uh, Tim Ferriss podcast, on Chris Ryan podcast. Wim Hof is this Dutch man who lost his wife to suicide years ago, and his ways to process the grief was through extreme physical trials, which led to him breaking down some records, that stuff that looked flat out superhuman. He made some discoveries through these trials about breathing techniques and things that allowed him to do things, like Wim Hof, for example, climbed Mount Everest with no supplemental oxygen, which is tough enough, but also did it in his shorts, with no t-shirt on, in the temperature that you may imagine exists in the Himalayas. The guy is a really fascinating character. If you're not familiar with him, I suggest googling him. Wim, W-I-M, Hof, H-O-F. And in a similar kind of way, Roosevelt had used, early in his life, he had used uh, a physical rough life as the way to get out of childhood sickness, and now he would use it as a way to try to get out of this maddening grief. He spent much time along the Little Missouri River hunting buffalo and ranching. While in the Badlands, he wrote something very meaningful that tells you a lot about his state of mind. There's this one sentence he wrote that really hits home for me. He wrote, Black care rarely sits behind a rider whose pace is fast enough. Let's try that one again. Black care rarely sits behind a rider whose pace is fast enough. 
this sentence kind of freaks me out because it's so similar to something I wrote under similar circumstances. This is probably, when I think of it, this may be part of the reason why I do have a soft spot for Roosevelt. Because I recognize some of myself both in his experiences and his reaction to them. Um, much like Roosevelt, I had my wife die while I was holding her hand. Much like Roosevelt, I had a baby daughter, not a couple of days old, mine was about 19 months old at the time, but still a baby. Much like Roosevelt, I reacted by jumping headfirst into a frenzy of action. You know, at that time, I just burned with energy and vitality. Unbearable grief is a strange beast. No one knows what's the right way to approach it, because everyone is different in this regard. Black care rarely sits behind the rider whose pace is fast enough was Theodore Roosevelt's way. Before being familiar with this quote, I wrote, No one is depressed during a marathon, which is basically the same concept, you know, the idea that action can be sometimes the antidote to depression. Now, there's some truth to that, but there's also a point where action is just a mask for denial, and the issues that are eating you up don't go away just because you ignore them, but they keep working on you even if you try to pay no attention to them. Now, in the short run, for me, it turned out to be a great strategy. You know, I had to do that. You know, no matter what my emotions were, there were still diapers to be changed and the baby would depend on me 100%. In this sense, unlike Roosevelt, since he had... Uh, a sister would become the full-time caretaker. In my case, my daughter depended on me, not simply in terms of practical things that needed to be done, you know, from sleeping to food, from diaper changing to watching her every second of the day, but depended on me for happiness. You know, she lost her mom and was in desperate need of any positivity she could get. You know, she didn't care whether I was feeling particularly enthusiastic about life in those months or not, she was a baby, and she needed me to be happy and help her find happiness. So whether I felt like it or not, I had to make myself happy and be ready to greet her with a smile every morning. You know, having to be there for her forced me to quit feeling sorry for myself. I would give myself 10 minutes a day to break down, and then I would close that door again. If I dwell too long on the horror of it all, it would have wreck me and I would have not been able to function. Now in the long term it was not a good strategy for me. You know, it ended up with some major psychosomatic illnesses and a good four years of intermittent depression. But, you know, enough with the life of Bolelli. We're here to talk about the life of Theodore Roosevelt. Just wanted to explain to you guys why this resonates with me. So for quite a while for Roosevelt always be in a rush, always in the middle of action, always doing this. This was, the reason was simple. There are demons chasing him. If he slows down, they'll catch up to him. His brother Elliot clearly didn't run fast enough and would end up heavily depressed, alcoholic and insane. Roosevelt instead went the route of drinking monstrous amounts of coffee just bursting with energy. Everybody said that his laughter was this booming, contagious thing. He was known for his boundless energy and his can-do attitude. And yet, this seemingly indomitable spirit 
live side by side with heartbreak and the heavy scars left on him by life. Supposedly, one of his best friends, the novelist Owen Wister, wrote, Theodore had to hold on to his optimism very tight, otherwise he couldn't get through the shadows, the darknesses surrounding him. And that's a hell of a sentence right there and tells you a lot about the man. Theodore had to hold on to his optimism very tight, otherwise he couldn't get through the shadows, the darknesses surrounding him. When he first got to the Dakotas, the local cowboys looked at him for what he was, a rich man from the east, coming here to play cowboy. They saw him as a wannabe, with his engraved rifle and a knife from Tiffany jewelry. He wore glasses, he spoke in a refined way that made the cowboys laugh. He was basically a poser. And the difference, though, is that wannabes are posers who can't stand the heat of the real thing. And while Roosevelt may have started out that way, he could very much live up to the standards. He played the part very well. Cowboys began to change their attitude when they saw him spend 13 hours in the saddle with them, hunting in 50 Fahrenheit below. Um, they were impressed that he was different from all the other Easterners they had seen coming west just to experience the cowboy life. You know, this Roosevelt was not great with the rifle, was not a great rider, but he just never gave up. You know, he had little talent for this, but he was whole heart. And sheer damn perseverance as a way of opening doors that talent alone cannot open sometimes. The fact that he worked like a dog made the cowboys like him, and eventually they became friends. He basically gained their respect by never quitting. On one occasion, some guy tried to bully him and actually pulled a gun on him, and Roosevelt promptly knocked him out. Roosevelt built a ranch house with his own hands. He could ride as long as and as hard as anyone. On another occasion, he killed a grizzly bear with a bullet between the eyes. When a certain Mike Finnegan, along with some of his friends, stole his boat, he chased them through the badlands, captured them, and then marched them as his prisoners for 45 miles to the closest sheriff, without sleeping a second of it all and just sitting down to read Tolstoy to stay awake. All these ultra-intense activities allowed him to actually sleep at night. Uh, his experience in the Dakota would shape him for the rest of his life. There's a quote that is reported, the phrase is slightly different, I've seen it, the precise wording changes quite a bit from one version to another, but the basic meaning of it, I'll pick one of these versions, he said, I would have never been president if it had not been for my experiences here in North Dakota. That tells you a lot about how important this period of his life was. Now, by 1887, a brutal winter storm killed most of his herd, making him lose tons of money. All in all, he spent quite a bit of time on and off in the Dakotas between 1883 and 1887. His critics say that he was more off time than on, and that this was largely just a propaganda move. 
And while it is true that he didn't spend there all of his time and that he was clearly keen on building his image and was quite self-conscious about it, some of this criticism is also silly. I mean, while some of it may have been hype, the reality is that the man still did things that none of his critics would ever dream of doing. The Badlands did change him quite a bit. And people, people clearly responded to this. His attitude was something that, you know, what he developed in the Badlands, what probably already had a bit of, but developed further in the Badlands, is something that really had uh, made people who knew him respond to him well. There's a sentence that kind of relates to what I was telling you earlier regarding his way of facing fear, where he said, There were all kinds of things of which I was afraid at first. But by acting as if I was not afraid, I gradually ceased to be afraid. Most men can have the same experience if they choose. This was a guy who faced fear head-on time and time again. Now, during one of his trips back east in the fall of 1885, he ran again into his former friend, possibly girlfriend, Edith Caro. He, he had told himself that he would never remarry, but suddenly upon seeing Edith, he realized that he was very into her. He actually felt very guilty about it. He was conflicted because he felt like he was betraying his wife, and he was dealing with some major survivor's guilt. Now, survivor's guilt makes no logical sense. Of course, people who loved you would want you to be able to go on and enjoy life. But somehow, despite the, f- the rationality of that argument, survival guilt still is real, uh, regardless of whether it makes sense or not. So Roosevelt kept going back and forth between being in love with Edith, feeling guilty, and he played this ping-pong game back and forth. He thought that remarrying would show weakness and disloyalty, but eventually, despite this, he decided to go for it. So by 1886, he got engaged to Edith, and they were married shortly thereafter when they honeymoon in Europe. This clearly begins a new chapter in his life. They took Alice in after she had been with her aunt for all this time. They had a new kid, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., and then they afterwards, in the years to come, they would end up having three more boys and one girl in the near future. He started to write as a way to make money. You know, he had written books before. Now he wrote the best-selling historical book, The Winning of the West. The Winning of the West is a difficult book to like today because one of the key theses of Winning of the West is this idea that American identity is forged through fighting Indians and that different European groups were molded into Americans through warfare. Uh, he wrote, It is a sad and dreadful thing that there should be of necessity be such throes of agony, and yet they are the bird pangs of a new and vigorous people. The reason why it's a hard book to like today is because the entire text is filled with this notion of an evolutionary conflict in which the fittest survive, sort of a way of historical Darwinism. The way he looked at it is none of these as there's no place for morality. It's about dominant races conquering what they can and thereby advancing civilization. In one of the least popular quotes by Roosevelt, he wrote, Whether the whites won the land by treaty or by armed conquest, 
matter comparatively little so long as the land was won. It was all important that it should be won, for the benefit of civilization and in the interests of mankind. This is, you know, reading it today is... Uh, you know, implicit in this statement is the idea that American imperialism is for the good of civilization, which is clearly a bit of a self-serving concept, never mind a fairly racist one. But, you know, we'll dwell more on his idea about race in the next episode, since it's a very deep rabbit hole to follow. And it's not a simple one, because some of Roosevelt's statements would be seen as clearly racist today, others are definitely not, and more often than not you see people siding, Roosevelt was a racist, or no, there was no racism whatsoever. And there was a bit of both, and we're gonna, we're gonna see how that plays um, in the next episode. So don't worry, I'm not shying away from it, we will get into it, but not right now. In the summer of 1888, he fell off a horse during a polo game against his brother Elliot and got heavily KO'd. Edith had a miscarriage a week later, and Theodore blamed himself because he felt that the miscarriage was due to the fact that she stressed heavily over his getting knocked out. At this time, he got into politics a little bit again. He campaigned for Benjamin Harrison, uh, and so when Harrison won, he started receiving political appointments. He kept fighting against corruption, even within his own party, and he started on some of the themes that would be big in the rest of his life. He would lobby for the creation of national parks. He wanted voting rights for African Americans, which, I mean, in the book, technically, they were already there, but more often than not, these voting rights were ignored in the South. So we see the beginning of his more progressive policies. Um, as I mentioned, he was really complex and often contradictory about race. You know, on some level, he obviously endorsed some notions of white supremacy, but at the same time, he wanted equal rights for people of all colors. He spoke out against the American Pro Protective Association, which was an anti-immigration group, by saying it's an outrage to discriminate on account of creed or race. In the meantime, his friend, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, got him a job in the Civil Service Commission. So T.R. moved to Washington to mainly to fight the system of corruption there which is something that was not always popular even among members of his own party. He removed three corrupt officials from the New York Customs House. He investigated Harrison's former law partner for corruption, which was not a popular move. Later, when Harrison appointed a man, uh, a former campaign contributor, you know, this was basically a way to reward somebody who were giving him money with a job, Specifically, he gave him the job of postmaster general. And then this guy immediately got to milk the job for all his good to, in turn, pass on jobs to his supporters. And this is something that offended Roosevelt because he felt like a job should be given to qualified candidates, not to people who paid you off. So he asked Congress to investigate the corrupt practices of the postmaster general who regularly required donations from his employees and other really shady practices. But needless to say, President Harrison was not really too happy with the fact that Roosevelt was calling attention 
to corruption within his own administration. Speaking of people who are not happy with him, Edith was a little mad with Theodore regarding his parenting style. He regularly screwed up bedtime routines by playing rough with the kids right before bed. He encouraged his kids to take risks and climb on trees and regularly undermined the lectures about table manners given by Edith because his own table manners were fairly horrible. He looked like a bear when eating more than the civilized aristocrat that he claimed to be. He cared more about daring and bravery than proper behavior, and that's something that you know makes me like him, but I'm sure that didn't go so well with Edith. In 1882, at one point while repairing a windmill, he split his head open with the blade of the windmill, so he came into the house bleeding, and by now Edith was so used to this kind of stuff, the constant accident that would happen around him, that she just handed him a towel, said try not to bleed on the carpet, and left it at that. In 1892, the Democrat Grover Cleveland won the election, but he kept him employed anyway, even though they belonged to different parties. By the time he was 33 years old, Roosevelt had published eight books, but was really short on money. He spent more than he earned, so he was thinking of having to sell his main house in order to make ends meet. After finishing the latest volumes of The Winning of the West, he didn't know what to do. At the same time, family life was a little rough, since he was seeing his brother Elliot drinking himself to death and sleeping around with any woman in a 10-mile radius. The family servant, Katie Mann, started asking Roosevelt for money because he was pregnant with Elliot's kid. Initially, Theodore didn't believe it, but when eventually the baby was born and Theodore saw him, he saw the obvious resemblance and so agreed to pay the money, kind of paid her off to make her go away. The Elliot's life is really taking a dark turn at this point. There's a hint of possible sexual abuse of his own daughter, uh, the author would become extremely famous in American history since she'll be the Eleanor Roosevelt, would be the first lady uh, married to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. She was uh, Theodore Roosevelt's niece. Now, the whole sexual abuse allegation is disputed. She actually really loved her father, but some of the reasons why people think there may have been something going on is that was, she was clearly always uncomfortable with sex. She also confessed of having removed much of her childhood and not remembering anything, which is a classic thing that people go through when they have some heavy trauma. Some people suggest that maybe she was abused by not by her father. Some people suggest that the nanny may have done it. It's really unknown. We don't even know if he was sexual or just being exposed to her father's drunken rages may have traumatized her. In any case, Eleanor was often dumped to play with her cousins by her parents, who didn't really care a whole lot for her. You know, her mother died, her father was alcoholic and a bit crazy. So Edith, in talking about Eleanor, said, I don't feel she has much of a chance, poor little soul. Which is an interesting statement, considering how far Eleanor will go in her life later on. You know, Elliot had been great early in his life, but by now he was dealing with heavy alcoholism, headaches, seizures, started becoming suicidal and very erratic in his behavior. 
1894 he died of having drunk himself to death. Theodore cried when he saw his body. I mean, partially it was personal grief, of course. Also, there's an element of upholding the family image, which uh, his brother, having gone uh, completely insane and alcoholic, was not doing wonders for. Now, this is a characteristic of Roosevelt and his family that I'm not fond of. This constant worry about saving face. Um, you know, his family and friends later will destroy some of Theodore's letters if they felt they were unflattering to his image. Uh, Theodore himself regularly hid stuff that he didn't like about himself. You know, he was enamored with a certain image and he was only too happy to eat, to edit reality if he didn't fit that image. This is kind of the opposite of the radical honesty that I love in podcasting, where you have to spill your guts and say things for how they are. You know, podcasting is not a medium that's great to keep an image when you talk for hours on end. But as Edith say, he's not of a nature whoever cares to talk over painful subjects. You know, denial was one of his main strategy. Avoidance, the unpleasant parts of life was as well. So, like it or not, that's kind of how it was. Okay, back to politics. In 1894, there was a period of economic depression. And during this time, there were the employees of the Pullman Company. This was a manufacturer of railroad passenger cars. The employee went on strike because... The, um, the company had cut their wages, but they, had, they kept charging them a whole lot of money to live in the company housing. So they, the railroad unions went on strike. Initially, Roosevelt praised the government crackdown against strikers. But as time went by, he started changing his mind and seeing capital as exploitative and seeing workers as being ex- heavily exploited by capital. At this juncture, there was a bit of a conflict with Edith. She she convinced him not to run for mayor. But this created tensions between them because he badly wanted to. So after this, she made up her mind to shut up from now on and let him do what he wanted. The new mayor offered Roosevelt a position on the New York Police Commission. So in 1895, he started this job. And... uh, you know, the New York Police Department was renowned for corruption at this time. And Roosevelt had just become one of four commissioners in charge of cleaning it up. The corrupt police chief, a certain Thomas Burns, told him, you have no chance to change the system. In the words of warning that he gave to Roosevelt, he said, you will break you, you will yield, you are but human. Which... Saying that to Roosevelt is pretty much bleeding in front of a shark because Roosevelt was not the kind of guy who would take the it can't be done type of sentence lightly. He would see it as a challenge. So Roosevelt replied by threatening to investigate the chief of police personally. You know, Burns was a very corrupt guy. He would charge saloons and brothels protection fees and had made crazy money in the process. Roosevelt dug up enough evidence of this that Burns was forced to take early retirement. Roosevelt later got rid of an inspector who who loved using the nightstick a bit too much. 
um, he made a point that no police brutality would be tolerated uh, on his watch. So he really actually took this job of, this seemingly impossible job of reforming the police department in New York very seriously. He pushed to a point for a new chief of police that was basically one of his men who would know he would defer to his judgment. He started doing things that most people thought Roosevelt had gone insane because he brought women and Jewish people in the police force, something that was a big no-no in, in, at the end of the 1800s. He would also personally go around that night in disguise, kind of in dark clothing, looking for cops, drinking on the job or slacking off, and started kicking them out, started firing cops who were taking their job uh, too lightly. He enforced the idea that cops had to learn how to shoot and train. You know, it wasn't enough to go around carrying a gun, you actually need to be good with it. So he enforced the notion of serious training for policemen. Beside punishing the behavior that he disagreed with, he also rewarded those cops who had done brave things, you know, from stopping runaway carriages to protecting innocent who are getting beat up by criminals or those who save people from burning buildings and stuff like that. One of his new friends at the time was a certain Jacob Rees. He was a Danish immigrant who knew poverty firsthand before he had become the police reporter for the Evening Sun. So Rees took Roosevelt with him to show him the city in ways that rich people never saw. And Roosevelt was eager to learn from him. You know, Reese took him to see what life in the opium dens looked like, took him to see abandoned home, homeless children living under the wharves. He took him to strip these joints, took him to see what the life of male prostitutes was like. He basically showed him the brutal reality of poverty and how the city's wealthy were profiting from high rents and poor housing. So they became, the two of them became really close. He invited uh, Jacob with his wife at home and Edith welcomed them because she really appreciated how devoted Jacob was to Roosevelt. In one occasion, Jacob just punched the guy who was talking trash about the other. In what I hinted at earlier regarding recruiting Jewish policemen, part of the reason why he did it is because many of them were fluent in Yiddish and understood the lower his side life best. So he felt those would be the guys who would be best to mediate issues in the Jewish community. In one occasion, somebody had asked him to stop an anti-Semitic preacher from giving a speech. This guy was in the middle of the square giving a speech about starting a crusade against Jews and, you know, this very anti-Jewish talk. And the way Roosevelt responded was great, because he said, no, I'm not going to stop him, because he has a right to free speech. So he was big on individual freedom. But then what he did do, which was brilliant, he sent only Jewish police policemen to protect the speaker from the people who wanted to throw things at them or wanted to beat him up. You know, so here you have this anti-Semitic preacher foaming at the mouth, speaking about how horrible Jewish people are, Roosevelt let him go on with his speech, but then he sends Jewish cops to protect him, 
and basically show him the stupidity of his prejudice, which was a really interesting tactic. As part of his anti-corruption efforts, Roosevelt enforced the law closing saloons one day a week. Usually the law was in the books, but cops were regularly paid off to ignore it. So he wanted cops to stop collecting bribes from saloon, so he figured this was a way to reduce the power of liquor dealers and politicians in business with them. But obviously this upset tremendously poor immigrants for which for whom the day at the saloon was not something that they wanted to see taken away from them. You know, saloons served as polling places, places where you would get loans, places to eat, recreation, gambling, dancing, prostitution. They were basically the working man's paradise. So the Republican Party was afraid that Roosevelt campaign would make them lose the German vote. And in fact, some 30,000 German workers were quite mad. They staged a demonstration. And in perfect Roosevelt style, he showed up to the demonstration with these 30,000 guys protesting against what he was just saying. As a result of this, many Germans started switching political allegiances. And some Republicans began thinking that maybe having Roosevelt among them was more trouble than it was worth it. So Roosevelt, as usual, he was a strange cat that didn't, he didn't really fit in either camp. You know, on one end, he was cracking down on saloons, he was cracking down on prostitution, and yet at the same time, he was befriending the poor ethnic people who love saloons and prostitution. He, you know, his friendship with Jacob Rees had given him a different understanding of the life of poor people. So while some of his behaviors were still the kind of things that most poor people would object to, they also liked the fact that he would sit down to spend time with their eating poor people restaurants, dance with the local ladies, um, was very much against ethnic prejudice in uh, police force. Like in one occasion he said, when one man attacked another because of his credo of birthplace, I got rid of him in summary fashion. And he also stated the question of doing away with all race and religious bigotry in this country and of fusing us all into one people is the most important of all. So, you know, the fact that he was uh, a fan of professional boxing, that he kind of rubbed elbows with poor people, made him the kind of unlikely case of an aristocrat who was actually loved by many poor people. Now, at this time, for the next presidential election, he campaigned for the Republican candidate McKinley, despite the fact that he actually agreed with the Democratic candidate Bryan on quite a few issues. McKinley thought that Roosevelt was too wild and crazy, but he figured, okay, I'll give him a, he gave him a post as Assistant Secretary of the Navy as a favor to Senator Lodge and some of the other friends of Roosevelt who were campaigning for him. So in 1896, T.R. became the assistant secretary of the Navy under McKinley. His plan was to build up the Navy and prepare it for a possible war with Spain. At this time, many people were supporting the Cuban independence movement in the United States. You know, Cuba was a Spanish colony, one of the very, really was one of the last colonies from a European power in the New World. And many people saw parallels. They felt like 
the same way as the United States got rid of British domination, it's only right for the Cubans to have their own independence, so, so there was a lot of sympathy for this. Tension with Spain was running high. Now, not only that, but the belief was also that the US, in order for the economy to prosper, they needed to expand, and they needed to become this benevolent imperial power. Uh, plus, it would be good to keep the American fighting spirit alive and not get too soft, so let's have a good war every once in a while to make sure things are running smoothly. Now, Roosevelt was obviously an imperialist. There's no ambiguity about it. You know, he clearly stated it. He he loved war. He was very big on this idea of survival of the fittest, in almost Nietzschean beyond good and evil kind of terms. So when the Cubans began rebelling in the latter part of the 1890s, Roosevelt was in favor of intervening. Dan Carlin dedicated a great episode to the story in his brilliant hardcore history podcast. If you haven't checked it out, I strongly recommend it. It's entitled American Peril. Brilliant, like all of his work. Dan is the man, no argument there. Just to sum up some of the key events to in order to provide some context for Roosevelt's life. In February 1898, the battleship Maine, that was an American battleship that had been sent to the port of Havana to keep an eye on the fighting between Spaniards and Cubans uh, to make sure that the lives of American citizens living in Cuba would be protected while this fight was going on. Well, this battleship blew up, uh, killing a whole lot of American sailors on board. Now, many historians argue that this was probably not intentional, but it was an accident. You know, back then, a lot of ships were in the unpleasant habit of storing their ammunition next to uh, the boiler room. So the odds of fire, you know, the ammo catching on fire and blowing things up, it had happened before. So it's entirely possible that that's what happened on the battleship main. Now, even if it was not an accident, but it had been intentional, it's highly unlikely that Spain was actually behind it, because, you know, this would really not serve the interest of Spain to bomb an American battleship, which would obviously lead to the US attacking them in a war that would not benefit Spain at all. So if anybody did it, it's more likely that it was Cuban revolutionaries trying to draw the United States into the conflict. So, the idea that Spain bomb the battleship main is tenuous at best. But regardless, many people wanted this war, uh, Roosevelt among them, so he was among the first to accuse Spain of blowing up the main and pushing for war. This was a delicate time for Roosevelt because his wife Edith was sick following her sixth pregnancy. Uh, she had to have surgery. His son Ted was also in bed with headaches and heavy depression, and nobody really knows why. A family doctor had said that Ted's depression was probably caused by Theodore pushing him too hard, which is kind of a familiar pattern since his own father had pushed Theodore pretty hard, and Theodore had admitted that he had been tough on Ted because he, in his word, he had the potential to be all the things I would like to have been and wasn't, and it has been a great temptation to push him. So it's likely that... Theodore's parenting style was taking a toll on his son. 
But while all this family drama was going on, Theodore wanted intervention, and he was frustrated with McKinley's hesitation to go for war. Um, many people in the US were feeling the same. The New York Journal had stated that they were looking for, I quote, any signs, however faint, of manhood in the White House. Ouch, that's a rough one. The New York Ward stated, there are manly and resolute ways of dealing with treachery and wrong. There are unmanly and irresolute ways, which was a clear jab at McKinley's policy. Eventually, McKinley relented under pressure and agreed to war. Uh, Theodore's boss, the Secretary of the Navy, was on vacation at this time. He was actually fairly often on vacation. So Roosevelt used this occasion to message, to send a message to the commander George Dewey in the Pacific to be ready to attack if war began. You know, he wanted the American na Navy to crash the Spanish Navy in the Philippines as soon as the war would be declared. By this time, Roosevelt was about to turn 40 years old, and he was the father of six. Plus, he had a political job. But he refused to be one of those politicians who sent others to fight their wars, while they took a big talk from the safety of their armchair. Against McKinley's advice, and against the advice of anybody who cared for him, Roosevelt left his job and organized a group of volunteers eventually made famous under the nickname the Rough Riders. He recruited all sorts of people, from uh, cowboys to frontiersmen to Native Americans to athletes to wealthy gentlemen. He was like kind of a circus unit in a way, where he was just... Uh, and Roosevelt would, uh, wouldn't lead him. He, he accepted to not be the leader of this unit because he didn't believe he had enough military experience, which was true. He was honest about it. But he would be second in command. His friends thought he was insane, and some of his statements help give that impression. Roosevelt stated, I would have left my wife's deathbed to go and fight, which is not exactly the kind of statement made by the most mentally stable man in human history. So, yes, maybe he was a bit insane, but he was also honorable. Roosevelt took the, you know, the whole paternalistic hero uh, part of his upbringing pretty seriously. Not just the paternalistic part, the I know what's best for you and this is how we should go, but also the heroic part. You know, he's very different from the modern style of political leadership where you send other people to die for you. Roosevelt said time and time again that he hated people who talked the talk but didn't walk the walk. In his mind, it would be unmanly and hypocritical to send others to fight for wars you advocate. Edith didn't want him to go to war, but she was resigned to the fact that it was the only way for Roosevelt to keep his sense of honor. And much of this goes back to his own father not serving in the Civil War. So Roosevelt left for San Antonio, organized this group of volunteers, the Rough Rider, roughly about a thousand men, mostly from the West. He, one guy who actually almost joined the Rough Riders, but was rejected because he was too young, was the very famous Will Rogers. As I mentioned, Roosevelt refused the command of the Rough Riders, but only accepted it later when his own superior was promoted and they had to pick somebody else, so eventually he would become the commander. 
Despite being named the Rough Riders, they actually very little room on the boats sending them to Cuba, so very few of them had horses. And when they landed in Cuba, some of the, the landing was a mess, they kind of botched it, so some of the men and horses actually drowned. So they really were more of an infantry unit than a cavalry one. On June 24th, 1898, his unit was ambushed in the jungle. They fought hard, forcing the Spaniards to retreat despite suffering casualties. They, they were ambushed, but they won the fight. One guy was killed right next to where Theodore Roosevelt was, was, uh, was standing. A total of eight were killed and quite a few were wounded. But Roosevelt being Roosevelt, he kept doing things that were not exactly the kind of things you do if you want to stay alive. He, at one point, took a leisurely stroll in front of the enemy snipers. And when his men asked if he didn't realize that he could be killed, he responded, Of course I realize it. But the problem we had was that our men were too afraid to get killed. So his idea was he was going to show by example what it meant not being afraid you know the whole notion of leading from the front in battle after this they got into a serious battle against the spaniards entrenched on a hill on july 1st the battle of san juan hill is one of the biggest ones that roosevelt will participate in many rough riders were killed by the spanish shells while they were waiting for the orders to advance on Kettle Hill first. Eventually the order came, so Roosevelt led the charge up the hill under heavy enemy fire, which was a very reckless thing to do, but it worked, was successful. He was wounded in the elbow, but managed to take the hill. Then led the charge against the second hill, San Juan Hills. And in the course of this action, he, with his revolver, he shot and killed an enemy Spaniard. Quite a few men were killed next to him. In all in all, about 89 Rough Riders were killed or wounded. And in the middle of all this carnage and bloodshed and having to kill a man and having some of his friends killed around him, Roosevelt thought it was great fun. He saw it as, what a great day. He was proud that his unit took the heaviest casualties. And he later stated another statement that doesn't rank up high in terms of mental sanity. He regretted not receiving, I quote, a disfiguring and ghastly wound in the war. Yeah, I don't even know what to say about that. His men, regardless of his mental stability, his men loved him for being just this tough guy who was willing to take all kind of risks. He, they also loved him because he was vocal about the horrible mismanagement of the war effort by the government. You know, the troops were often served the spoiled meat, they had little supplies, very little medical care. Uh, Roosevelt's superiors recommended him for a Medal of Honor for his bravery, and his men agreed. Everybody said, yeah, he's the man. If anybody deserved a Medal of Honor, it's him. But the War Department didn't really like him because he had complained too loudly about how poorly they had handled the war and refused to take some orders, had been busted drinking beer with some of his men and he had uh, let go a court-martial soldiers, all moves that were highly irregular. So they refused to give him a Medal of Honor. 
Eventually, long after his death, he'll receive a posthumous Medal of Honor, making him the only American president ever to be a Medal of Honor winner. When he got back home, he wrote a book about his experiences in the war. The book was called The Rough Riders. And by the time he came back, he was a war hero and a celebrity. The, the Wild West show that was popular at this time signed up some 16 Rough Riders to reenact the Battle of San Juan Hill. And Roosevelt's name was in the newspapers everywhere. Now, at this time, something really interesting happens. Uh, the U.S. Senator Thomas Platt. Platt was the Republican Party boss and the most powerful political figure in New York at this time. He had a bit of a problem. The incumbent Republican governor was plagued with scandals. His reputation was in ruin. So Platt wanted someone else to run for the governor's spot. Some people suggested that Roosevelt with his previous political experience and having come back a war hero, perfectly fit the bill. Platt, however, was not so sure about him. He felt that he wanted to be able to control, you know, the governor was going to be his own puppet, he wanted to run the show, and he wasn't so sure that Roosevelt would play ball. He felt he was too independent, too wild, too unpredictable. But other people kept telling him, look, we're going to win if we have him as a candidate. He, he can be worked with, you know, don't worry about it. The media kept writing about him as a hero. He's loved by the people. So during a meeting, Roosevelt told Platt he would discuss things ahead of time with him before approving them. And Platt thought that this meant he would take orders. But that's not what it meant. Roosevelt literally only meant, I would talk to you first. But then, whether he received permission from Platt or not, he would end up doing whatever he wanted anyway, which is really not what Platt had in mind. So in any case, he ran for uh, governor of New York. William Randall Hearst, the newspaper boss, was very jealous of him and attacked him in his papers. The, the race was fairly tight, but Roosevelt ended up winning it. So he went from nearly a nobody a couple of years before in terms of his political weight to coming back a war hero and becoming governor of New York all within a matter of months in 1898. Platt had uh, chosen some people that he wanted in this new administration, but Roosevelt turned him down. He said, no, I don't want those guys, and Platt flipped out. Uh, Roosevelt remained polite, he kept informing him of his decision, so Platt, you know, he felt like, you know, we're stuck with him, there's nothing I can do about it, and so he reluctantly supported him. Yet, the fact that he wouldn't take orders from party bosses and would do things on his own term was problematic. And the fact that he, was, he had his own idiosyncratic style was obvious, not just in political terms, but also in terms of his personal life. When he got into the governor's mansion, he got rid of the pool tables in there and replaced them with wrestling mats. As Even as governor of New York, he always took private lessons from the best wrestlers he could hire. He, his friend, a conservationist, 
Gifford Pinchot, who would become one of his main sparring partners for his wrestling sessions. Edith would often peek down from the second floor and then see her husband with his friend just wrestling like animals and just these guys weren't playing around you know Roosevelt ended up breaking his own ribs and dislocating a shoulder while wrestling because they were playing a bit rough there was you know can you imagine you go visit the governor who's busy wrestling bare-chested while messing up his own shoulder tossing his opponents that's Roosevelt in a nutshell right not exactly the typical politician in terms of his political philosophy, Roosevelt was changing. Uh, he was born among the wealthiest elite, so everybody naturally expected him to side with business interests. But Roosevelt felt the need for government to stop the excesses of capitalism, and he felt that corporations were growing too powerful for the health of American society. So he started pushing a progressive agenda against sweatshops, uh, he asked his friend Jacob Rees to investigate the sweatshops for him. Despite this, you know, the reality was political life was tedious, was made of lots of meetings, of bureaucracy. So to survive the boredom, Roosevelt tried to see it as some kind of epic struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, seeing himself as this knight in shining armor leading the troops. Among some of his policies, he expanded the state's forestry department and state parks. He appointed black people to state jobs, which was highly unusual. He signed a bill banning segregated schools in New York. He pushed to guarantee state workers an eight-hour workday and not one minute more. He pushed for taxes on corporations. He also wanted limited working hours for women and kids. All kind of moves that did not make Boss Platt pretty happy. Particularly the, tra the taxing of corporations drove him insane. Some people began accusing Roosevelt of socialism. Platt was getting paid off by corporations to make sure they would not be taxed, so he was furious when he saw Roosevelt beginning to regulate corporations and passing taxes. He told him flat out that unless he backed down, he was going to destroy him. And Roosevelt ignored him. He firmly believed that some of his political stances would end his career, because angering Platt was not a wise move. But he just didn't care. He felt, this is the right thing to do. I don't care whether they are going to bring me down or not, I'm just going to do what I can while I can, and that's the end of it. He understood that he was now at war with some of his own party bosses, and he expected that the signing of some of this legislation would just put an end to his political career. And in fact, Platt was trying to figure out how to get rid of Roosevelt. So when in 1899 the vice president died, he started thinking that maybe pushing Roosevelt forward was not a bad idea, because the reality was the vice presidency was an office with no power. Very few vice presidents ever managed to become presidents. So many felt that it would be a great way to neutralize Roosevelt. You know, the vice presidency was a place where politically, 
political careers went to die. And Roosevelt knew it, so he didn't want it, but there was enough popular support for it that eventually he relented. McKinley didn't like him either, he didn't want him as his vice president, but he agreed to have him on the ticket because he felt that he could get him votes, he was popular, he was absolutely tireless on the campaign trail, he ended up giving over 700 speeches during the presidential campaign. So, really, the Republican Party decided, yeah, let's have him as a vice presidential candidate, but really that was their way to get rid of him. Some were not sold on this line of reasoning. For example, a senator from Ohio stated, don't you realize there's only one life between that madman and the White House? But Platt felt... How often do presidents die in office? Come on, you know, this is a way to get rid of him. We we don't really need to worry about him. So in 1900, during, he ran for... He ran along with McKinley on the presidential ticket, and they won the election in a landslide. However, winning was the beginning of the end for Roosevelt, because he realized he had no power, he had nothing to do. Uh, he actually wanted to abolish the vice presidency if possible, because he felt he was useless. But then, this is where things take an interesting turn. In 1901, only six months in his second term, McKinley decided to attend the Pan American Exposition. While he was there, he met with large, enthusiastic crowds. But among them, there was one guy who was considerably less enthusiastic about McKinley. He was an anarchist, was inspired by the speeches of Emma Goldman and by the recent assassination of the King of Italy at the ends of Anarchist the previous year. So he walked up to McKinley and shot him point-blank in the stomach. At first it looked like McKinley would survive the shooting, but his wound got infected and he ended up dying a few days later. So at 42 years old, Theodore Roosevelt became the 26th president of the United States, the youngest president in American history. And I like to pause here for a second to just picture Platt's face at this moment when in his office he received the news that McKinley had been killed and the guy whom he had been trying to get rid of, that pesky Theodore Roosevelt who had been an annoying thorn of his side and he figured he got rid of him he sent him in this dead-end job where he'll never have to hear from him again, well, that guy had just become President of the United States.
I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Um, next month you'll get the second half of the life of Theodore Roosevelt. Maybe a long one, the next one, but I'm going to try to deliver it all in one. I, I notice that sometimes people are not so happy when I break it down in too many episodes. So I'll try to keep it to a two-part series. After that we'll have uh, another two-part series coming up. I'm actually, it's beginning to catch up with me a little bit. You know, I started out doing a lot of research without releasing any episodes. And now um, it's beginning to get close, but I'm going to do my best to crank down on the research to make sure I can still deliver something close to an episode every month or somewhere close to it, maybe 10, 11 episodes a year, something like that. But um, we have in store some really exciting stuff coming up. Some of the next topics I'm really excited about. Uh, if you are interested in this kind of thing or knowing ahead or seeing what the, where the discussion is going, check out my public Facebook page. I'll put a link in the episode notes. That's where I often announce things about future plans for the podcast. So that would be sweet. Uh, while you are at it, it would be very sweet... I mentioned earlier that um, BlueApron.com is sponsoring this uh, Roosevelt series, and I think it may be even sponsoring the beginning of the next one. So the way Blue Apron works is that you sign up for a plan, you get to decide how often you want to receive their deliveries, and after that you'll receive to your door all the fresh ingredients necessary to prepare a recipe of your choosing. It's pretty easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card, which you have chosen already when you've gone on their website. There are a few choices to pick from. You pick what you like. You'll get the pre-portioned ingredients, and it all can be prepared in 40 minutes or less for less than $10 a person. I've really enjoyed some of their products. I think if I remember correctly, I tried three or four of their recipes. Some with, along with my mom, some with my lady. Um, we, had, we had a blast. We really enjoyed every single one of them. The food is brilliant. So check it out. I had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed the quality. Uh, check out for yourself. I particularly dig the fact that Blue Apron supports a sustainable food system. Something that's good for you and the planet through high-quality ingredients good recipes, all the good stuff. Now, the beautiful thing is that um, Blue Apron will give... um, If you check out this week's menu, you can get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Now, free food is never a bad thing. These guys are so confident that they know that if you try it, you'll like it. So check it out. You have really nothing to lose. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Also, similar deal with my regular sponsors, uh, Datsusara and Onnit. The, um, Onnit, on some of their products, you not only you get a 10% discount if you go to onnit.com forward slash history, but some of their products, particularly their supplements, if you don't like them, you don't have to pay. You tell them you didn't like them and they'll refund you, no questions asked. So again, that's the kind of customer service that I can get behind. They have a whole range of very good supplements. 
I've, I've tried quite a few of them. Special foods, clothing, exercise gear. There's a whole range of things out there. And they have been supporting History on Fire from before I even started. So these guys are big allies of mine. And if you enjoy the podcast, other big allies of mine are the company Datsusara. Their website is www.dsgear.com. You can use the code Daniele at checkout for a discount. I use their backpacks, computer bags, and other gear pretty much every day of my life. Everything is handmade, which is way better than cotton, environmentally speaking, and in other ways as well. So check them out, dsgear.com, use the code Daniele. If you didn't catch any of the above links, just look at the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com and you'll find uh, the links with with the codes. Now, I try not to spend too much time chasing sponsors. I spend enough time doing research for these episodes that... Chasing sponsor is the last thing I want to do, so I don't want to bury you under too many announcements. One quick way that you can... One way in which you can help the podcast is by setting up a donation, either as a one-time thing or as a recurring donation, by going to historyonfirepodcast.com forward slash donate. Quite a few of you guys have donated. That's super sweet. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. It really... You know, doing this podcast is fun, but it's also an insane amount of work. You know, I take typically somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three hundred hours to produce a single episode. So that's pretty much a full-time job. But, you know, I can't really afford to live on these alone, so I have to have other work. So, you know, in other words... If you guys can help out, it's a really sweet thing. Some of you are, and I thank you deeply. Very easy way to help out. If you don't feel like parting with some of your hard-earned money, just use the Amazon link at historyonfirepodcast.com forward slash donate. There's an Amazon link there, so you don't really have to spend an extra dime. Just click on the Amazon link. You do it once, then bookmark it. So anytime you go on Amazon, you can use that bookmark and it automatically helps out the podcast since Amazon will give a cut of whatever you buy back to the podcast. Having said all that, let's see, what else do I want to tell you? Taoist Lecture Series. I've got great feedback from those of you guys who have bought it. There's for less than $10, so you have seven hours of lectures on Taoism that you can find. There's an episode, there's a link in the episode notes regarding where you can download this. I also have an audiobook out entitled Not Afraid. Feel free to check it out if there's maybe something that interests you. And last but not least, I want to mention my lady, Savannah M., who's the author of the History on Fire logo. She just created a public Facebook page for her art as well as for her fighting because <laughs> that's what she's going to be doing. She's going to be making her debut in professional mixed martial arts. So if you want to check that out, I'll put a link to her page in the episode notes. Thank you, thank you, and thank you again for listening. Hope you guys have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.